Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console's Best of Clip Show from 2023. It has been a wonderful year, our biggest yet, because of course it is our first. Uh, if you've been listening since way back at the end of January 2023, then thank you for joining for the journey. But if this is your first ever episode, then you're in for a treat because we're going to be hearing here from some of the 52 guests I've had on my perfect console this year uh, some of the best clips so these are their memories of their favorite games of maybe things that have happened in games that have stuck with them of the time they first discovered a game that meant a lot to them or just general things from their lives we've got actors comedians musicians voice actors game designers we've got some of the individuals who are responsible for really building the video game industry from Nolan Bushnell, the co-founder of Atari, to Hank Rogers, the man who discovered Tetris. Uh, we've got just a fantastic slew of guests to hear from in this episode. So yes, yeah, sit back, enjoy these memories. If you haven't listened to the show before, I'm sure you have, but if you haven't, very briefly, the premises, I asked my guests to pick the five video games they would like to put on their very own fictional games machine and market to the world. I asked them to give their console a name as well. Uh, we're not going to be listening to too much of that today, but if you would like to go back and listen to some of the back catalogue, then you should do that. Subscribe and you can go back and hear the full episodes. All right, in this first clip, we're going to hear from Irish national treasure comedian presenter Dara O'Brien, who is talking about the arcade game Pac-Land, which as a young person he played in his local arcade 
and found out about an Easter egg that transported him from the sleepy seaside town in which he grew up to the buzzing centre of Tokyo, uh, where he imagined the designer putting these secrets in the game and sort of marvelled at how they had travelled across the world to get to him. Uh, We also hear from uh, Heather Ann Campbell, the American stand-up comic, the improv comic, the voice actor and the writer of uh, several episodes of the fantastic show Rick and Morty. Uh, She's talking about how she fully committed to using her vocal talents in the online mode of The Last of Us. And lastly, in this section, we'll be hearing from the English comedian Pierre Novelli, very, very funny chap, who is telling us about the first time he discovered 3D video games existed and the fact he could be in World War Two. This must be when I was 13, 14, maybe fit, maybe a little bit older. I watched somebody play it once um, and there's a bit where you run through a little village. There's uh, ghosts are floating above your head and you've got to avoid them when you jump. And there's also fire hydrants and you've got to avoid the fire hydrants. The fire hydrants can shoot out water that pushes you along, possibly into a ghost. And then you get to the last fire hydrant. And then I remember watching somebody else play it, some older boy play it. And he got to the last fire hydrant and he turned around <laughs> and ran backwards, which was, you know, unusual in a, in a side scroller anyway. And then when he ran backwards, the fire hydrant moved, just moved slightly. And uh, when it moved like a full, like, unit across a little hat came out of it ding and landed on his head and now he could headbutt the ghosts and A that's an easter egg there's no reason for you to have got that that's really sweet that was a really nice thing to do and you kind of go I like an easter egg it's quite quite clever but also how the hell did he know and now I knew and I this is pre-internet and I but I and I had no sense of that was the moment where I thought, well, someday there will be a... I went spiraling into a, mm. a vision where I went, someday computers will link all of us and we will know all this stuff. I went, how do we know? How did anyone get that information out right. that other than by some mad word of mouth? There was no, there's no Packland magazine. Uh, and I've always been amazed by how the word got out that you could do that and you could find that little thing. It, it, the word got out and got to, got to Bray County Wicklow in Ireland which is a long way from Tokyo. Different to express how <laughs> not Tokyo, the small Irish town I grew up in, is. Small seaside resort that had a couple of arcades the uh, grew up in. Small, out of season, permanently out of season seaside resort uh, that I grew up in. I, like every day is like Sunday uh, type seaside resort. And how that hot information from a Japanese games developer got to me blew my mind. Uh, as a yes. There are run and gun sections but it's it's more like a the way that the symphony uh, like a like a symphony has movements the last of us multiplayer has like slow bits and fast bits which is really rewarding as like a play experience so you'll listen through walls and you'll try and like figure out where people are You'll craft your weapons, but you're going up against live human opponents. Did you have like a group that you were playing with? Uh, or, or were you just like matching with randoms when you got oh, into this? Oh, just matching with randos. Um, uh-huh. I didn't know anyone who was playing factions. I also was Mike on and oh, nice. to probably the annoyance of a lot of the people who I was playing with. Right. Like I was in world <laughs> voicing. <laughs> Sorry. So- <laughs> I feel like, and I should point out, you are a, you are a professional voice actor. So. 
for real. Like these these assholes took my daughter. We got to get them. And they'd be like, what? The, what? <laughs> like 15 year old kids. I love it. Because like m- most women are like, I am never turning my mic on. And, on. and you just leaned right into that. <laughs> I didn't know you could get first-person games. Really? I didn't know they were real. I looked at it and I went, wait, hang on. And I literally, I remember like freaking out, holding it in my hand. Sort of going, wait, I can be in World War II holding a fucking gun myself. You are kidding. How is this even possible? So I got it and uh, it blew my fucking mind. It melted my head. I, I The adrenaline I got from that now extremely blurry game. I can even remember all the briefing things, like you'd read this briefing document while the mission took forever to load. Lieutenant Powell, that's where you were, Lieutenant Powell. The adrenaline, there was generally, there's a moment where you have to sneak through um, a North African, Africa Corps base fighting the Nazis. And the machine gun towers have got these kind of rotating spotlights and you just have to like move in such a way that they don't get you. Classic, yeah. I, being such a games virgin, didn't realize. And I was like, oh, I guess I'll just walk across this courtyard. And I I was still sneaking because there were still enemies around. But I didn't realize how to do it properly. And I got caught in the searchlight really suddenly and just like noise and the screen flashing red and my death. And it made me jump so much and the adrenaline of trying to sneak was so high that I genuinely paused the game and had to go and lie down until my heart rate came back to earth. Glass of water and a flannel. Genuinely. Like like <laughs> the, 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 the first-person shooter version of when you watch that footage of people jumping out of the way of the train when they first saw a moving picture. Yes, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so this this game, war, and then the fact that it was multiplayer and you could play World War II against other people in the world. and Yeah. Oh, man. We've been very fortunate to have some extremely talented voice actor performers on My Perfect Console this year. Here we're going to hear from Ashley Birch, who you will know from Borderlands, Life is Strange and Horizon Zero Dawn. From Jennifer Hale, who you will know from Metal Gear Solid, uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic and the Mass Effect trilogy. And from Dominic Armato, the voice of Guybrush Threepwood in the Monkey Island series. This is such a bizarre thing to say, <laughs> but in the Shadow Broker DLC uh, for Mass Effect 2, you're, you're trying to find this person called the Shadow Broker, this alien called the Shadow Broker. And it's basically like a buddy cop action comedy of with you and your uh, another character in the game called Liara. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's this moment. And again, they, you know, they use most the same motion capture for both gendered shepherds. So there's not like <laughs> fe- you know, Femme Shep walks real sexy and Male Shep walks like a normal person. They look, they have the same, you know, animation style. And so there's this moment where you meet the shadow broker and he's this huge alien. He's like very intimidating, very big. And my shepherd just ran up, jumped and clocked him in the face. And I got kind of teary eyed. because <laughs> It was like, we can do this. Women can be like this powerful. And, and, um, and Jen, Jennifer Hale just imbued her with such just, there's such depth to her performance and especially now playing an open world character protagonist myself it's a difficult thing to do because you have to honor every single person's viewpoint of the character you know if you're if, if you're in a, a choice wheel and you're you're the player wants to be nice and then they want to be mean and they want to be nice and they want to be mean and they want to be mean and they want to be nice like you have to make all of that make sense and feel consistent uh like you're like the person's playing a congruent character even if they're an asshole 80 percent of the time and nice 20 percent of the time like 
your performance has to support those choices. Now, it would be remiss of me not to ask you how you went about settling on the voice for FemShep. So, yeah, what what are you doing when you do her voice? What are you thinking of and what bits of yourself are you putting into it? Yeah, yeah. What what I'm putting on the shelf is any kind of emotional indulgence. Um, This is a human being who, first of all, it's a human being. So there's our first piece of definition because we live in a, that's the thing is what universe are you working in? Are you necessarily human? You're not, you know, in a lot of these. And so, okay, number one, I'm human. Number two, I'm a soldier. And my greatest, greatest guidepost was I'm a soldier. And I have to honor that, you know, how do I move through the world? It is never about me as a soldier. It is about the mission. It is about saving people. It is about doing what's right. It's about smacking people upside the head when it's necessary because we are all here to do what's right. Because Shepard was also the moral compass. <laughs> he is the moral compass of that project. And I think that's why people got so freaked out about the ending sometimes is, you know, the people who did, you know, and it's understandable, right? Because you've invested enormous amounts of time in this game and like, what? What was that left turn? <laughs> you know, well, sometimes that happens, right? Yeah, I just put significant pieces of me on the shelf. There's no time for indulging in emotion. I, I remember recording the ending of three, in particular, my conversations with Garris. And um, there was one line where I I started to cry. And I was like, nope, Shepard does not cry. That is a luxury we don't have in this universe. So I had to take a second and, you know, gather myself back together and... Yeah say the words in spite of how I was feeling, which is what Shepard does. Where were you when you found out that LucasArts was looking for someone to voice uh, Threepwood? I was in the waiting room for my agent in Beverly Hills when I was living in Los Angeles. I had gone out there um, because I desperately wanted to do some character work. At the time, basically everything out of Chicago was commercial, all the ad agencies in Chicago. So I'd done just metric crap tons of of uh, commercial work when I was a, a kid and a teenager, but I really wanted to do character work, and uh, I was I was sitting in the uh, uh, the waiting room as you know the little reception desk and a sofa where the voice actors would wait, you know, take their turn to walk into the studio and read whatever copy we had for the day. So I go to the desk and I pick up my copy and I'm starting to flip through it and I see uh, I see the Curse of Monkey Island and this drawing of Guybrush Threepwood and I completely lost my mind because as you said, it had literally been. <laughs> no exaggeration. It had literally been about two months prior that I was talking to a friend on the phone back home, and he was like, "You know, what would your what would your dream role be?" And I said, "Well, for interactive, it's like it would be Guybrush Threepwood for the Monkey Island series." But that's ah, never going to happen. You know, Ron left LucasArts. They haven't done one of those games in five or six years. It's it'll never happen. But it sure would be fun. So, huh. so yeah, that uh, it was it was a moment. What um, a great think, moment! Uh, yeah, I went walking yeah. around the office. I'm telling myself, I'm like kind of talking to myself, psyching into it, like I will be. Will be Guybrush Threepwood, and all the agents are looking at me like, "Are are you okay there? Who? What? Walking with a limp, like you got a peg leg? <laughs> oh, just something like something, anything, and and and, and just like the, the pre- that was like some of the most intense six to seven minutes of pressure I've ever had in my entire life. Because you know, for for voiceover, you don't there's not there's not like a lot of prep usually. It's not like for some reason, at least it was the time. You know, for on camera. You know, you get your sides a day ahead of time and you can work on it and think about it and all that kind of stuff. Voiceover is much more casual. Voiceover is just like, oh, hey, here's the copy. We'll be in the booth in like three minutes, you know? Yeah, so tell me, what, what did you have to read for it? What what have they given you? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. I mean, I'm sure it was some some little bits from the script. Mm. Uh, you know, whenever you get those audition packets, it's always, 
uh, at least it used to be. I understand it's a, a you know with everyone being concerned about leaks and all. I understand it's a lot different now. But back at the t- back at the time, it was you know you get a a character description, you get maybe a little summary of what the project was, what the game was about. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have you know a few short selections from two or three different scenes, you know, with a little bit of range. Um, I don't recall what those scenes were for Curse. And then, uh, and then the thing that was always so important to me, although it mattered less in this case, is they always give you a, a drawing as well, mm-hmm. um, just so you can see the character, which for me was always the most useful thing of all. Right, right. Um, but, uh, but in this case, it was like, I don't, I don't need, I don't need the background on this. I got this. I got this. So, so it was just a, just, just the pressure of like, I need to get this part. I will get this part and I have six minutes to figure out how I'm going to do it. So. Yeah, right. So you've got that six minutes. Did you have a moment where you were like, am I going to do a voice for this? I mean. Or were you like very much so? Yeah, would yeah, it? no, no, I did. It, yeah, because 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 here's the thing: because I, you know, now I've got this, and it, my dream role is right in front of me, and I got you know five or six minutes to figure out how I'm going to do this, and so I start going through my head like, oh no, I gotta I gotta actually voice this thing now. So I'm trying to think, okay, can I, I can do this? I'm like messing with some voices in my head, and then I just kind of stop for a second. And you have sort of that that moment of Zen calmness. So I thought, well, I've been playing these games for years. I've I've played and replayed them for quite a long time now, and. You know, I think this is pretty typical for a lot of people in a situation like that. When you when you're the protagonist and it's very conversational, there's a lot of dialogue. You kind of put yourself in there, you know, which mm-hmm. is which is what I always did. You know, I always kind of hurt myself, and I thought to myself, well, it, it it worked okay for me for the past, you know, seven or eight years, whatever it was. Maybe maybe I'll sound good to everybody else. So I decided to just kind of, you know, I mean, it's still character work, but I decided just to kind of not mess with any sort of goofy voice or anything like that, but just yeah vocally play it very straight and not going to do a british accent or anything like no, that no 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 yeah exactly and just <laughs> and just hit the character and and as much as possible just try to get myself in there to make it nice and easy and 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 feel natural you know anything anything that mm. anything that i because you know part of it part of what i always loved about the characters you know and, and i'm sure everyone does you know i'm not i'm not unique in this respect but you know we relate to him somehow right mm. so it's like okay what aspects of his personality kind of match up with mine and then how can i kind of you know, crank those up to eleven and really highlight the bits where where we're similar. So that's kind of that's kind of how I decided to approach it. The upside being that it was very very natural, and I you know I knew the character and I knew the story and everything. So so it it, it worked out okay. One delightful thing that we've been able to do with the podcast this year is have guests on who have discussed one of their favorite games. And then subsequently had on one of the creators of those games. So in the next few clips, you're going to hear some of my illustrious guests discussing games that they particularly love and then hear a word from the game's creator. So you're going to hear from Phil Wang, the comedian, uh, Jason Schreier, the investigative journalist, both talking about games by Lucas Pope. And then we'll hear from Lucas himself. Then we're going to hear from the narrative designer Magna Giants, and she is discussing a game by the legendary and divisive, I think it's fair to say, Peter Molyneux. Um, it's a game by um, Lucas Pope, who he's also made the um, Return of the Obra Dinn, which I keep meaning to play, but I haven't played oh, it. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's was wonderful. Papers, Please, I heard about. Um, and I was sort of, I was really attracted by the audacity of making an admin game of making a game where you just had to check people's documents. I'd sort of 
immigration control. And I thought, sure, how fun can this be? I downloaded it and I started playing. And what's amazing about Papers, Please is it really does start out as you just stamping documents, checking someone's details line up with what they say they are. And if they are, you trump them through and they come through. If they aren't, then they're rejected and they have to return uh-huh. um, back to the line they came from. And at first you go, oh, okay, this seems pretty simple. And the decisions are pretty easy. This guy's obviously not who he says he is. This lady is. He can come in. But then it starts to then sort of sneak in some really difficult choices. Sympathetic characters who don't have the documents they need. So you let them in and potentially put yourself in trouble. Or do you reject them and live with the guilt of that? And then so there's some criminal elements come in Mm -hmm. and start trying to bribe you. And at first you go, no, I'm clean. I'm doing this for the good of... Askastatan or whatever the the fictional, fictional country. country is, but then because you're also having to make sure you get enough pay to pay for your rent oh, yeah. and food uh, and like your, your, your son's birthday is coming up and yeah, can you get him a present and and so suddenly you start to really think about the consequences of your actions and you realize oh, I actually do need some more money. Maybe I can let this criminal through or get a bit of money, then I'm safe for a bit. And the way that the game is able to sneak these difficult decisions on you yeah. is really amazing. And the amount of detail, and again, the beauty is all like 8-bit style, but it's very beautiful and there's just the right amount of detail. And just little things like, you know, the imagery of the long sort of queue of dark shadows moving towards your office and then one figure will break off and come into your office and then they'll become a fully formed person with a face and a story and then and then once they leave your office they become sort of this dark shadow again that moves away and and you, their life is no longer in your control <laughs> it's just a very beautiful and poetic way of um, of going about it and such a simple setting can become so rich yeah. and I, I, I'm i sure I could go through it again now and discover whole new playthroughs and new endings and, and all these little secrets that, that passed me by the first time it's just such it's so amazing to make a game that's so small that rich yeah yeah, and a game where which is about something as well, isn't it? You know, the like you say the temptation to become corrupt it just shows how you know, that inch by inch that can just creep into a person's life with that sort of, Uh, who has that, you know, that degree of power, but not too much, but you can just see and then how the system starts to unravel as a result. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very powerful um, piece of uh, social commentary, really. Yeah. My next game is Return of the Obra Din. Have you noticed that the music in this game sounds a little bit like the music in Succession? That's a, a fun, a fun little yes. observation that I that I had. Um, so this game, this kind of is representative of a certain genre that I truly love, which is puzzle games and games that make you think. And this game especially just feels like one big logic puzzle in a way that just totally titillated me. Um, it was just such an enjoyable experience going through this thing with a little notebook on my desk. Played through it all over the course of a couple of days. This was 2018, so this was before I had my first kid, so it was another one of those, like, hey, I can actually spend a weekend playing a game, and that was very fun. But yeah, no, this game is is really incredible. It's essentially the premise is you're on this 
You It is set in the uh, 1800s and you are a claims adjuster for this ship that has uh, been abandoned and, and you just row up to it and you have to figure out what happened here. And you do that by diving into um, people's lives using, using this. You, basically, there are a bunch of dead bodies on the ship and you have this compass that can let you see the moments before their death. And you have to go around and you have to figure out these uh, 60-something passengers on this ship not just passengers, but also crewmates and, and captains and stuff, admirals. And you have to uh, figure out who everybody is and how they died and who killed them. And mm-hmm. all of the, as 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 it unfolds, you find out that there was a, a whole lot of crazy stuff, shenanigans happened on this <laughs> ship. Uh, and it's extremely enjoyable to go through what essentially appears to be like one of those big logic puzzles like you would do in the SATs or something. Well, that's, or whatever the British equivalent of the SATs is, uh, <laughs> where it's like... Um, Jane is sitting next to Maggie, but Maggie is two seats away from Charlie. Right. Yeah. Only yeah. one of them is wearing a blue hat. And it's one of those big, big logic grids, except it's 60 people. So it's a really cool just experience to go through it. I've never played anything like it until, well, actually, that's not true. I hadn't played anything like it then. Since then, I've also played The Case of the Golden Idol, which is also yes. very, very similar and up there and um, just another high quality kind of puzzle investigation game. But really what's special about both of those games is they really rely on you as a player to think and they don't hold your hand too much and they they trust you to use your intuition and figure out what's going on. And sometimes there's some some wrinkles and some snags along the way, but like there's never a little Atreus coming up to you and being like, Hey, have you decided have you have you thought about checking over there? And there's never that whole like (laughs) triple A mentality of like everyone needs to finish this game and it's like no I mean uh, maybe it allows you to make loads of mistakes as well as you fill in those names you can get them all wrong and get yourself in a terrible mess can't you yeah and you can also brute force it if you want by like uh, because because it'll tell you um, every three it'll tell you if you're right and so sometimes you have to do a little bit of guessing and checking if you want trial and error and yeah, just an incredible experience. I just really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's one of the most memorable games. I'm also interested because in, in Oberdin, you sort of allow your players to draw incorrect conclusions about the things that they notice and they see. And, um, you know, for anyone who's not played it, you're going around this ship and you get these tiny little vignettes of how each of the crew members perished and you have to sort of figure out which... Uh, which of these um, scenes relates to which name on the ship's docket of of crew members? Um, but yeah, you you allow us to to make errors and sort of gra- uh, base base uh, you know false assumptions and inaccuracies and stuff. And I feel like it's also it's almost like a sort of cautionary tale about the the temptation we all have to fill in blanks rather than live with incomplete information. Do you, do you think that's fair? Does that kind of thing interest you? Yeah, I, I tried to capture that a little bit, the idea that, first off, it's hard to even know exactly what happened, and second off, you really want to know. You want to fill out the list. That's kind of the impulse I was banking on with, with the people who would enjoy that game, is that they would see this empty list and just just have to fill it out. They would kind of be compelled to fill it out. And the game, at a certain point, uh, it pulls you through, and then it kind of lets you finish the game, and you get a bad ending, but you kind of you can get off the ship, and then you can end the game. And I, I didn't want a gate there that said you have to figure everything out. Yes. I wanted that to kind of come from the player. I want the player to feel like, I, I just want to finish this list. I want to fill everything out and then feel satisfied with it. So I was definitely banking on that and hoping that that, that would work. And, you know, for some players it does, and for a lot of players it doesn't. Mm. But that's kind of, that was my goal anyways. And 
the idea that they could get things wrong was something I tried to incorporate into the overall design of just the way that it worked, the way that it confirmed fates, the way that as you get further along in the game and you make more, you, you get more correct fates, it, the game becomes easier just naturally because there are less blanks to fill in basically. So it's kind of a implicit difficulty curve, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, so they were allowed to make mistakes that could be corrected later. And then as they learn more about it, their assumptions could be uh, verified or you know nullified or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's like a real risk of the job as a, as a journalist. Sometimes you can go into a story and perhaps have an idea of where, where you think it's going and where you want it to end. And then you're looking for facts that verify that. And that can be a very dangerous path to go down. You know, have you had any experiences in your own life where you've, you've jumped to incorrect conclusions that have uh, turned out to later be, be false? Uh, just every single day of my life, probably, <laughs> uh, if I'm thinking about. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can bust that out on a podcast right now, but that, that's a general thing. I, I try to keep an open mind on most things because I know that um, it's so easy to to make a wrong assumption like that. <laughs> and I, I do actually try to incorporate that into my games. I mean, Papers, Please has some of that, too, where uh, people who look like bad guys can actually end up helping you later on, or situations that look easy can be end up being difficult when you get into them. <laughs> um, it's kind of part of the whole subversion sort of thing I like to do, where you sort of set up some expectations that the player is looking for, and then you flip them around and surprise them <laughs> uh, partway through the game. I think I must have picked up Theme Park in Bangalore, and then got so obsessed with it that we went back and you know just picked up every other theme game that there was. At some point went to, you know, I think I moved to Saudi a year after that and I was living in Riyadh and, you know, it's quite an isolating sort of place. You have to live on, you live on a hospital compound, you know, and, and you're often, I think, a little bit more on your own. It's not, you can't, you can't really go anywhere without a male guardian, in, in which case that was my my father, but, you know, my father was at work. And so, you know, when he was at work, you were kind of stuck at home. Um, and so there would be all of these these kind of evenings where he was on shift and, and my mom was on shift and I would be at home playing theme hospital, curing fictional ailments, no way. running a hospital while they were in the hospital. <laughs> You're like, I could do this better than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, and then I think at that age, you know, I mean, I was probably around, you know, 10 or, or 11 by then. But as a child, I, I actually really thought that what you did when you grow up was become a doctor because one of the things about doctors is they usually hang out with other doctors. Right. Um, and so all of the adults I knew in life, apart from my, my teachers, yeah. were doctors. So we, you know, <laughs> made perfect sense. Yeah, right, sure. The computer games industry in the 1990s and 2000s was fueled by something called crunch. <laughs> And, and that's where we'd all work together in the office and create, you know, the hopefully the final stages of the project, and that could go on for many, many, many weeks. And I've worked on a game called Black and White where we crunched for nine months. That's just what every studio did back then. And then there was this realisation, there are kind of two realisations uh, simultaneously happening. The first realization was we're all getting older. We've all got families. We've all got, you know, children. We just cannot have this kind of 20 somethings lifestyle of just burning the candle at both ends. That was the first real realization. The second realization was that 
we, you know, we, the computer games industry is here for the long term. You can't burn people out, yeah. yourself included, by crunching them to death at the end of the project. So now uh, we have a rule at the company I work for at the moment called 22 Cans that we, we just don't do any crunch past six o'clock uh, in the evening. And that work-life balance is a lot, a lot more healthy. So, but I, I, I tell you what, Simon. I mean, I know crunch sounds awful, but there were some wonderful moments. You know, when you're all working together so hard mm. and trying to invent things that have never been invented before. There's there is a magic that that definitely isn't quite there when you're not not crunching. I wouldn't go back to it then. No, yeah, yeah. I'm, I don't want you to get into trouble for defending crunch. I don't think you're doing that. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. That there's almost like a. I remember reading a piece about you know sort of working in a kitchen and how everyone pushed together and that sense of almost like being on a submarine or something. <laughs> just every exactly. And also, I mean, you know, for me, and this is just personally for me, when you're doing something creative and you're you're coding it. You get your mind into this mindset, which is, you know, where everything is. You know, you're able to focus completely and having to say, right, that's it. I'm not focused anymore and, go, you know, go home or do whatever means you've got to take the effort to put yourself back in that mindset again. So it, it, um, there, there is a, there was a magic that happens, but, you know, like everything in the past, you look at it through rose-tinted spectacles. There <laughs> some awful, awful things that happened as well. Yeah, I mean, well, for the sake of balance, what was some of the cost of uh, of that lifestyle? It, it, it was. I, I think the the first iterate, the first some meaningful cost came when when the team started to have children and the realization that. Those, you know, those people were, you know, weren't seeing their children and then their wives and, mm. and girlfriends were, were under totally understandably being incredibly, um, incredibly punished by this, this culture. I mean, I'll give you an example. We, I worked with this genius coder called Jean-Claude Cotier and he had come over to the UK to work with us and uh, with his wife. His wife couldn't speak English particularly well. They just had a first baby and we were crunching. You know, uh, it was an incredibly, uh, you know, challenging time for him. Yeah. And uh, which, which game was this? This was a game called Black and White. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
One of the great things that video games can give us are places of refuge in times of difficulty or just a place to spend time with someone that you love. And in the next series of clips, we're going to hear this sort of function that games have performed for some people at key moments in their lives. So in the next few clips, we're going to hear about Ronan Farrow talking about how he played games in a rather busy household with, of course, his mother, the Hollywood actor Mia Farrow. We'll hear from the novelist Naomi Alderman about how Diablo 2 provided some sanctuary for her in the weeks following the attacks on the World Trade Center on September the 11th. Then we'll hear from Mike Rose about how Plants vs. Zombies was a place for him to find a bit of sanctuary after his apartment was looted by a thief. And finally from Susan Cowman about how Silent Hill 2 was a place for her and her partner to spend some romantic bonding time. I don't know if it, I mean for me it, during my childhood there were definitely times when when games were were a refuge I suppose somewhere so I sort of retreated. I, I you know I don't know much about your childhood but I know that you had lots of siblings because your your mum adopted lots and I uh-huh. guess that was happening when you were that age. Did did video games fulfill that function for you were they sort of a a place that you could uh, find a bit of peace and quiet in? That's interesting. I mean, you know, you're probably as capable as of armchair psychologizing me as, as I am myself. I, uh, it sounds pretty plausible, you know. And my childhood was in some ways, a, a, you know, a crucible of uh, a fair amount of turmoil and, and trauma. Also, some some really wonderful opportunity and and uh, a lot of love and stuff. Uh, so I tend to focus on the the good oh, in sure. it as much yeah. as possible. But there's definitely also tough stuff to. Uh, you know, excavate over a lifetime of therapy. And I, well, I suppose all of our, our choices on how we spend time as kids are, are informed by that kind of refuge seeking, right? Unless you're of course, one yeah. of the mythical people that had a well-adjusted childhood, <laughs> which I, I wish for you and everyone else. <laughs> I, I I definitely consciously experienced games just more as like a, a joyous thing that felt it artistically and creatively and um, socially enriching. You know, I, I really I was I was very fascinated by the ways in which the medium felt different from from other artistic <laughs> and creative mediums and the kind of the merger of some qualities of an art form and some qualities of a toy and, and the technological component, which I was always sort of nerdily drawn to. I mean, you know, I watched like every hour long digital foundry oh, you like video on ray tracing. <laughs> I'm like, I'm that guy. I'm really like deeply annoying to play games with because I just want to like sort of stop and look at the like, you know, materials work. Like, look at the shaders. <laughs> I left university with a degree. I wanted to be a novelist, but there wasn't a, like you couldn't go and apply for that job. So what people said to me was, oh, you know, try working in a law firm. So I was working in a law firm. It was also not a good fit. It was a funny time in my life, my mid-20s. I felt like I was living somebody else's dream life, living in Manhattan, uh, being an extremely religious Orthodox Jew. And I was there on 9-11. I was in the office. I watched the towers falling from my office window. It's funny, like, the towers falling was really... Until that moment, I, I've just left an empty gap there where I don't know what the word is. It felt like something was over 
at the moment that the towers fell. Everybody knew someone who had lost somebody. So I remember in the months afterwards, you know, going with a friend to a concert and my friend saying, oh, yeah, you know, I bought this ticket for my friend who died in the towers. And there was just, there was a lot of that going on. There's also something about, I think, one wants to make meaning out of tragedy. Do you see this with with people who have, have lost somebody in very tragic circumstances, that you want to make that mean more than just this terrible thing happened. So to set up a charity to make sure it doesn't happen again, you know, to, to, and I think a lot of people in Manhattan decided to change their lives after that day. There was a lot of that going on. People decided to get married or decided to break up or decided to have a baby or decided to move out of the city or, you know, decided to reconnect with a strange family or to finally cut off their horrible father. And, mm. you know, all of those things were happening. It seemed to me in the months that followed, I thought very much that there were probably people in those towers thinking the thing that I was thinking, which was, I'll just do this job for another few years and then I'll go and write that novel that I've always meant to write. And then that's that. Yeah. So get on with your life. Get on with what you want to be doing. Now, also at that time, Manhattan was a really horrible place to live um the ta- the the fire smoldered under the towers for months and every time the wind blew from south to north across the island the sky was yellow and you could smell it like a smell like burning plastic <clears throat> everywhere every piece of street furniture lampposts and bus shelters covered in flyers for the missing, have you seen this person? Have you seen that? I remember flyers about is somebody missing and they had a pet because the ASPCA will go to their apartment and they'd look after the pet. So just, and in that time, having said that I am uh, very dyspraxic and I don't really play Twitch games, I became, for the only time in my life, completely addicted to Diablo 2. So I had been out drinking one night uh, with a friend. I think I'd been. I think I'd been to see Ratatouille, the cinema. Then classic. I mean, the night. I remember a lot about it. And I and I came back home to my flat, and it was my first apartment. I just moved out of like my uni halls, and I and I got this apartment. I was so proud and all this, and and I came back to the apartment. The door was just smashed off the hinges. Oh, no. I went inside and. All my stuff was gone. Like, all of my stuff was gone. Like, someone had come in, they'd taken suitcases out of the cupboard, and they just filled them with all my stuff. Oh, mate. I had, had, like, all the games consoles, you know, that I collected over years. All of them were gone. Everything, everything was gone. And the only thing left was my PC. I guess they decided this was too hard to carry. (laughs) Like, so we're going to leave this. Take that, PC nerds. Yeah. I had an empty flat except for a computer. So the next few hours were were horrible and, and bad, etc. And then the problem was it was late. It was like 10 o'clock at night. So now it was 1 o'clock in the morning. My door's just wide open. Oh, gosh. Because I can't get a locksmith until the next day. And I'm like, this person's going to come back and kill me. That was all I was telling myself because I was just in shock. I di- and I didn't know what else to think. 
I decided to myself, right, well, I can't sleep. I'm going to stay up all night. I have to. Steam had, like, started kicking off a bit more then, and it started adding a few more games and stuff from, from different names. And, <laughs> and so I thought, right, I'm going to go on Steam. I'm going to find something that I can just play right now that's going to keep me up all night. It has to be something good. So I go on Steam, and just right there, the first thing that pops up is Plants vs. Zombies. And I'm just like, yes, this looks colourful. It looks happy. It looks fun. I'm just going to play this. I went on a date uh, with my now wife and uh, fell in love with her very quickly, moved in very quickly. But when you meet someone like that, it takes you're constantly just checking whether or not you you like each other. It's an odd thing meeting someone like that rather than through friends or, you know. And I think it was a few weeks in, she revealed that she loves gaming and so does I. And one of the first games we played together was Silent Hill 2. So this game holds a great deal of memories for me because it was one of the first games that we played together. Hell of a game to play together first. I know, it's so romantic, isn't it? <laughs> I think, again, it was racing, though. <laughs> I seem to have a real problem with buying games. And the reason I loved it was, I, I mean, I think it's an amazing game. I think it's amazing. I think the bowling alley, the flats, the, the, it is, I think it's just beautifully done. Yeah, we should say it's a it's a horror game, is it, where you're in investigating a well, an abandoned town, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you're yeah, a gentleman who is, I think, seeking his wife, and you're on Silent Hill, which is shrouded sometimes with mist and fog, and you have a radio. I remember the radio crackled if something was about mm. to happen, and terrifying. Often, nothing happens for a great deal of time. That's the that's the genius of Silent Hill for me is that you would run around for ages without anything happening and then suddenly you would see something. And that's, again, it's not just a jump scare, it's glimpses of things. M- my other great passion in life for, is horror films. Is it? Again, it's not something I download. Huge. I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm a nice lady off the television. I don't think people need to know how dark my soul is. <laughs> I absolutely adore horror. And it doesn't go for jump things jumping out all the time. There's often a really, there's a dread. You know it's about to happen. Something horrific is about to happen. When is it going to happen? So it is a, I think it is a beautiful game. And I think the story is fantastic. Again, for me, working out what's happening. There are slightly frustrating puzzles in it, without question. But there's a lot of very small puzzles going on within it. What we used to do of a weekend... Again, everyone's going to be utterly thrilled by the uh, details of our domesticity. <laughs> I printed out a walkthrough of Silent Hill. It was the size of a phone book. <laughs> we would sit on the sofa and Lee would play. <laughs> You'd tell her what to do. And that's what we would do. And then if it got to a cutscene, and we still do this to this day, when it comes to a cutscene, you pass the controller. Oh, ingenious. 
And you wait, and you switch roles at that point. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we just so we switch roles. Even now, we sit on the sofa with our little tartan blanket, and when a cutscene comes on, you pass the controller. That is adorable. <laughs> so we want to play this really deeply disturbing game. It's like two old people in a car with a roadmap, <laughs> right? No, you've gone the wrong way. You've gone the wrong way. Wonderful. It was a wonderful way to pass time. Yeah. Silent Hill 2, for me, is just almost perfect. For many people around the world, video games provided a bit of refuge and focus and something to do during the pandemic months and the lockdowns around the COVID-19 pandemic from 2020 onwards. And uh, a few of my guests have talked about their experiences with video games during that time. In this next batch of clips, we're going to hear from Josh Scher on the experience of releasing a major blockbuster game, The Last of Us Part 2, during the pandemic. We'll hear from Marie Leconte on how she rediscovered video games after... During one Christmas, she was kept at home, couldn't go and see her family back in France, and so decided to pick up a games console for the first time since her childhood. And lastly, from Tom Bissell, the American writer for books and films and TV and video games. And uh, Tom describes how his clan... His group, his crew, that's the word, his crew on Sea of Thieves, the wonderful rare game set on the high seas, provided him with a community during the lockdown that meant a great deal to him. I mean, for, for me, and I think for many people, that game, The Last of Us Part Two, is really associated with lockdowns. And, uh, you know, what, what, was it, what was it like for you releasing such a major project, you know, in such unprecedented circumstances? It was weird. I mean, we were obviously, we were obviously very happy with the game. And sure. All the emotion surrounding a launch that you would normally have, like all the fears and anxieties and anticipation, then just gets thrown into this weird vortex of uncertainty even above and beyond what you think the public reception is going to be Oof. there were just a whole bunch of logistical things to worry out including like who's going to make the discs <laughs> is anybody going to be there to like actually get the discs manufactured of course yeah. we ended up delaying the release the release was supposed to be may and i seem to remember we delayed or april and we delayed it a couple of months and it was largely because those logistics needed to be worked out. Right, and, right. Uh, somehow they were. Uh, we managed to get not only the digital version out, but the physical as well. I guess whoever was doing the COVID masks could have did the PS5 discs on the side. <laughs> exactly. It's all part. It's all part of the same factory somehow. Yeah. But you know, there's also what was interesting. What was interesting too was uh, just part of the reception was you know I got a lot of uh, messages, calls from my friends who were sort of like, "Hey, Josh." Uh, don't take this the wrong way, but I don't know if I want to play your game right <laughs> in this in this time of uncertainty and global pandemic and civil strife. You don't want to play a game about uncertainty in a pandemic and civil strife. That's fine, right. <laughs> by all means. You know, obviously, you know, production on that game started many many years before COVID was even considered a possibility, and so the timing 
I don't know whether you consider it like uh, fortuitous or terrible. Uh, it, it, it is what it is. Well, it didn't harm the game's performance in any way, did it, or its reception? So, yeah. No, no. I think ultimately a lot of people were happy to have a distraction, even if the distraction itself was uh, not necessarily the most uh, comforting game that you could possibly play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was uh, Animal Crossing for um, us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, going between the two, Animal Crossing, and then into the Last of Us Part Two. Both are about communities, uh, <laughs> you know, having thinking different approaches to uh, coming together. So, you know, <laughs> I didn't have to bludgeon blathers to death in the final act of Animal Crossing, though. <laughs> no, but, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who had some unkind thoughts about Tom. Played lots of games when I was a kid, when I was a kind of like very early teenager. And like when my brother would play Soul Calibur, would play lots of like Mario games, etc. And all the earlier Zelda games. And then, yeah, about sort of, you know, 13, 14, um, I discovered alcohol and kissing and I was like, oh, that's a lot better use of my <laughs> much better use of my time. Uh, so I kind of stopped playing games for a very long time. And then what happened is that, so the first lockdown, so I, I, I live by myself. And the first lockdown, I went completely mental because I'm normally a very social and very active person. And suddenly I was stuck in a very small flat by myself. Um, so yeah, it's a, a generally really bad time for me. Um, and also because I think I didn't, so I think a lot of people managed to relax into it, but which I did not do at all. So I was doing an hour to two hours of exercise every day. I was getting dressed every single day, like during the entire lockdown, even, you know, when I wasn't seeing anyone, obviously. Like a good, diligent freelancer. I know, but I think my thing was, if I don't do... So I feel like I'm going quite deep quite early on here, but 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 I think I, I did find it so horrible that I thought, if I don't stick to that very strict routine, I'm going to fall apart right, just yeah. entirely and very quickly. Mm. So I actually, yeah, again, I, that, that was probably the healthiest I'd ever been and the, you know, um, most organised I'd ever been, etc. Right, yeah. And then when the winter lockdown came, I kind of went the opposite direction, really, where I thought, no, I I, I just can't do this twice. Um, so I bought myself my first ever pair of um, pyjamas. I was about to say adult pyjamas, but that sounds weirdly sexual when all I mean is that I'd never bought pyjamas as an adult. Right. Um, and I bought sort of, you know, fluffy slippers um, and uh, a projector to watch movies on. And I, and I bought a Switch. So I went to, this is quite bleak, I went to the CEX in Clapham, uh, which was doing, so you, you only had to stand outside because uh, you couldn't obviously go into the shop on, I think, the 24th of December because uh, obviously I couldn't go home for Christmas. And yeah, and so my Christmas present from me to me was a Switch Lite, just kind of secondhand. Oh, wow. Because um, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just going to be 14 um, in the second lockdown. That That's my right. plan. Handed to you by a, a man in a mask and wearing medical gloves, <laughs> handing you your Christmas present. That was basically it. Yeah, it was just, again, incredibly, incredibly bleak. But yeah, no, but it, it was massive game changer. And I think... Since the end of the pandemic, a lot of people have talked about, you know, the surprising amounts of silver linings that actually the lockdowns had and blah, blah, blah. I would say that for me, there were, you know, 95% horrible and actually, you know, I, I hated all of it and um, and all the pandemic and everything in the isolation. But video games were the one thing where I'm like, actually, that, that did kind of change my life. So I ended up playing, obviously, the entire winter lockdown, I basically just spent gaming so I think, what was it, 2021, at the end of the year, you know, Nintendo sends you an email saying how much you've played. And I think it was, but something mad, like 470 hours, I think, in a year, which is just so many hours. But then basically what happened is that after after lockdown ended, I just kept playing and I haven't really stopped. But, you know, kind of to the extent that until actually Tears of the Kingdom came out, 
I'd I'd run out of it. I feel like I, I've played all the good Switch games. <laughs> like I've completed the Switch. open world narratively opaque <laughs> adventure encouraging <laughs> like friendship simulator meets pirate fighting sandbox friendship game. on the high seas um, <laughs> friendship on the high seas and i'll tell you why i love this game during the pandemic i think i played four to five hundred hours of sea of thieves always with the same group of oh, people wow. we played at night after night after night Always finding new goofy ways to amuse ourselves. Always finding new fun mechanics to just futz around with and so mess with. We had with. an actual ship's crew. Yeah, we had a crew. We had a we had a, we had our uh, our livery or is it livery or livery our livery colors. Uh-huh. Like we had everything down. We had just a system because you had to stock the ship and you had to like do everything. Yeah. It makes being on a ship like everybody has a job. If you're not steering the ship, you're watching for rocks. If you're not watching for rocks, you're minding. Like you're on the telescope looking around for other people because there's always at least one or two other people, sometimes as many as six other ships in the server with you. And if you cross paths with another player, you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe you're all going to drink grog together and play music on your banjos and dance on the deck. Maybe they're going to torpedo or hit you with a cannonball and steal all your shit and destroy like hours of pirating that you've been doing. It's an incredibly evocative, incredibly fun utterly unique game where it's just, the play is totally unstructured you just determine the kind of experience you're going to have depending on how you want to play maybe you help people i've run into pirates that just decide to help you and just guide you along i've met pirates this is one of the weirdest experience had a ship full of treasure they attacked us we were sinking they all jumped over started fixing our ship <laughs> And putting the treasure back on the ship. Meanwhile, all of our swords, our guns are up. Like, what are these guys doing? What are these guys doing? <laughs> and then they all just sailed away <laughs> after causing terror and then delivering salvation. And I didn't know if they just did that because they felt sorry for what the crappy fight we put up. That feels vaguely abusive, to be honest. <laughs> it does. It does. It was. It did. But it's a game that uh, has brought me so much joy, so much surprise. And, you know, the night my dad... The, the night my dad died, I was on Sea of Thieves playing with my crew, one of whom had also lost his dad. And I remember the two of us just talking about our dads crying and playing Sea of Thieves, digging up treasure, cooking chicken legs on these little tiny desert islands, mm. and just laughing and having a good time. What more can you say about a game that in, on an incredibly dark day, it brings you joy and relief and connection so many games try to create this sense of friendship and connection and their mechanics always undermine right, right. what they're trying to do. Sea of Thieves, to me, is a masterpiece of a game design that encourages the actual emotions it's trying to evoke. There we go, some of the brilliant guests from My Perfect Console, the first year, 2023. 
Uh, we will be back again next week with another selection of clips uh, from some of the illustrious guests who have been good enough to come on My Perfect Console to talk about their lives, their careers and their five games they would like to immortalise in their very own fictional games console. So please pop along then and you can catch up with those clips. We'll try and uh, gather them together into nice little themes where possible. Um, and yeah, just another word of thanks to you, the listener, for uh, for coming along on this adventure this year, for being so vocal in your support. Thank you to those of you who have written in emails and for those who have messaged on social media and who have suggested guests and uh, who have suggested tweaks to the format, all of that kind of thing. Um, next week, I'll do a, pro- a few proper thank yous. But um, but for now, have a lovely week. I hope you've been enjoying your holidays. If you've been uh, fortunate enough to be able to take a few days off, and I hope I hope you have. And uh, yeah, we'll be back again next week with a bunch more guests and uh, some of the most enjoyable clips from this year. Until then, have a great week. Bye. infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing we wondered the same thing so we made byheart a better formula for formula learn more at byheart.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.